like to contact the show, send us an email at liveonfourlegspodcast at gmail.com or get involved in the conversation on social media. Join the Pearl Jam Podcast community group on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at Live on Four Legs Pod. And for playing under uh, Mother Nature's hottest light. Is it always that fucking hot here in Sacramento? So you consider yourselves a bunch of sweaty people, right? There's some San Francisco infiltrators up here in front. Couldn't wait till Saturday, could you, fuckers? And away we go. You're listening to Live on Four Legs, the live Pearl Jam podcast experience featuring... Mr. Stone Gossett! Fucking camera in the truck. everybody now welcome to live on four legs a definitive live pearl jam podcast and for the last couple weeks we have been preparing for the may tour and we're just so excited about this and today we're just going to continue doing it because we're doing sacramento from 1995 and and i wanted to get a sacramento show in because well, it's a show that I'll be at, so I kind of wanted to study one of the three or four shows that they had played prior, which they actually haven't been to since 2000. So, you know, to get a little bit of the history, I think is good, and especially what we did for Phoenix and San Diego the last couple weeks and what we'll do for L.A. and Vegas in a couple weeks later. We'll give you a sense of what happened there and kind of like just pay tribute to the city because it's not one that most fans talk about at all. When you think about California, you think about San Francisco, you think about LA, you think about San Diego, but we're going to see how Sacramento 1995 worked out. And we'll get there in a second. We'll have a guest right off the top, and then we'll have another guest coming in a little while. So let's introduce everybody. Randy Sobel over here, John Farrar over there. Hello, hello. So I got some messages about hashtag John content which I am now changing to hashtag John Tent because it's like Ben Affleck and Jennifer Lopez. You have to marry the two, right? I guess that's hashtag John Tent because mm-hmm. and now this is, you can own it. It's not yeah, John well, Tent. Can... I don't even, I mean, you came ridiculously low on your Twitter goal, so I don't think it's happening. Look, I mean, our episode post probably got about five. 
So getting, what, 20 or so is much better. And then there were individual messages that I got from people like Matt and Dukes and uh, I believe Amy Wynn. And they all said, hashtag John these, these These people are all, are all dead to me. <laughs> Look, they want it. So at some point, and I think the best time to maybe do this is in September, which is, is waiting for your John content, which honestly might be. I'm sorry. Uh, wait, waiting for what? I'm sorry. John tent. Thank you. <laughs> it could be either or, but hashtag John tent. Yes, that works. Waiting for your John tent for this long. It'll build the anticipation. I think yeah. in September, there are two things. There is the Atlanta 98 show. That was your first show that, that mm-hmm. we're going to be doing. And also September is the anniversary of the 10 years since they have played the city proper. So you got to talk about true. that stuff, right? Well, that now, now I'm just sad again. I gotta, now, now, now you're just bumming everybody out again. Well, all right. How about this? We won't talk about Atlanta for the rest of the episode. Maybe I'll bring it up later. Instead, we're going to talk to somebody else that his first show was Sacramento 1995. Would that make you happy? That would make me extremely happy. Anytime we do 1995, I'm super excited. And to have someone who's there is going to be fantastic. Same, same, same. Welcome to the podcast, longtime patron and longtime friend, Dylan Sumter. How you doing, Dylan? Hey, hey, players. How are you? <laughs> great, I feel like man. I was just listening to the show. It was great. I was just that, listening to Live on Four Legs. That's exactly man. what you were doing. Yeah, that's just crazy. a little bit of banter in the beginning, you know? Yeah, love it. You requested an episode back, like, probably either beginning of the pandemic or right before that, I think we did Chicago 94, if I'm not mistaken. And you were supposed to come on with us then, and you weren't able to make it. So we're making it up to you that we're inviting you on for, for Sacramento 95 here. And honestly, I think this is a perfect one. You know, you weren't at the Chicago show, but you were at this one. It was your first. Yeah, that's correct. And it was during, you know, when Pearl Jam was the biggest band in the world. It was like huge. They used to be. You talk about newspapers, they used to be like on the cover of the newspaper, or at the very least, like their shows would be covered in the entertainment section with a giant picture of Pearl Jam, you know, or Eddie jumping in his classic, what was that, like his army green shirt, you know, Yeah, so cool. And that's probably the reason why they totally strayed away from that and wanted NoCo to be a different record, by the way. Yeah, and then in this set, you can sort of feel it that... It's a little bit different because at the time it was a day or two later from Red Rocks where they did that the slow set and like a long set with a bunch of new songs and cover songs. And so I didn't exactly expect that show at Sacramento because it already happened. You know, Pearl Jam was very much in the moment at the time. And you can tell on this show that they had something special planned and it was like almost like a performance piece, you know, from top to bottom. It was it's it's a cool show. You know, your first show, I think you'd mentioned a little bit before we started recording, you were real young at this show, right? How, how old were you? Yeah, I was 15. I was about to be 16 in uh, wow. in five days. Yeah. my. Uh, that's right. They, that's the right time to go. Perfect time to go. And uh, my sister, she's four years older than me. She was in college, uh, university in Chico, Cal State University Chico at the time. And as a poor college student, she thought it would be a wise business investment to buy a couple tickets for her brother and her boyfriend to go see uh, Pearl Jam. 
I thank her for it to this day because it really changed my life as far as viewing live music in such a setting, you know, because I'm not a big arena person, but Pearl Jam is a, is a big arena band and you can tell. Was this your first concert period? This would be like my first, I would call it my first real concert. Like okay. when I was a kid, I saw John Mellencamp, John Cougar at the time, <laughs> you know, stuff like that. But nothing sure. huge. Sure. Like Pearl Jam was massive. Like this show was massive to me. Like a sporting event almost, you know. For sure. Now, of course, whenever you talk about 1995, you have to get into the ticket situation. So what was your ticket experience like then? And I know your sister ordered them, but do you remember how she went through it? Oh, yeah. So it was, uh, geez, I can't remember the company. It was like entertainment, ETM or something like that. And at a certain time and a certain day, so probably, you know, Tuesday at 10 a.m., you had to call this 800 number and you got through to a live operator and you gave them your credit card and your name and then they printed your ticket with your name on it and you were supposed to be there with your ID at the gate with your ticket because it has your name on it. So to cut down on scalping, you know. And right. the tickets were, I think, nineteen ninety five. They ended up being like $22 a piece or $23 a piece. I still have the uh, ticket stub. And it was a hand-drawn you know, piece of art. So the ticket stub itself was like this oversized ticket, you know, almost Willy Wonka-esque. With, uh, yeah, if you could you send know. us a picture of that, that would be awesome. Oh, yeah, for sure. I'll do that. Yeah. Is it a point man or is it a bug one? Because I know they it's had the a couple bug, yeah. different... The bug, okay. It's like the two Beatles 69ing or whatever it is. I don't exactly know what it is, but it's a, <laughs> a tremendous logo. It's tremendous. So you get into the show, everything's going on, and what's it like Like just walking in there, like maybe going in for Bad Religion to be able to, able to see them? Everybody's in the sun cooking, including the band. The band is like playing into the sun. It was crazy. And the bass player, I can't remember his name. Jay Bentley. Yeah. Yeah. He wore a beanie the whole time during the, uh, it was like 96, <laughs> 98 degrees or whatever. And it's the Sacramento Delta. So it's humid and it's hot, you know, and it's just like this massive people. And, you know, you're kind of in a trance, like almost like a uh, cattle. Cause you're just like, wow, what is What is this happening in front of me? And it was just the opening band, you know, it was per- not to say just it's bad religion is the opening right. band. And you're like, they should be touring this themselves, and they're the opener. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah, no doubt about that. All right, Pearl Jam comes on. And talk a little bit about the atmosphere and what the crowd was like. What was that all like experiencing that? And honestly, with the music going on, which is a pretty fast show, which honestly, throw a dart at any 1995 show, and you get that. But when they came on, what happened with the crowd? Yeah, so I'll set the scene. The sun finally went down. It was, uh, you know, what they call magic hour. And, and this was, was the still, solstice, right? Yeah, it was like almost nine o'clock at night and the sun was still going down, you know. So Pearl Jam had waited and they came out and it finally started to get cooler. You get this like a delta breeze, you know, coming to get rid of that heat. So it was like this nice breeze blowing through. And then as soon as the lights went out, it's just like people started screaming, like the people down front in the mosh pit, like they were already moving and Pearl Jam was barely even walking out. And then there's the sound of like Mike walks out, people are like screaming, yeah, you know. And then, you know, there was this sound I'll never forget, you know, when Eddie walked out and people were just like on fire, you know, I could hear Stone doing that D chord. 
And I was like, oh, this is either going to be Oceans or Release. And I'm like, it's not really an Oceans kind of night, you know. And then you hear that first sort of D chord and the crowd is already going. It's a feeling that I'll always remember because it felt like I had the chills on my body, you know, when they started Release. And like, I still chase that feeling sometimes, you know, I don't, I don't get that feeling as much being, you know, an adult. You lose some of that magic, but that was like proof that, you know, magic was real. You know, like just that feeling coming off of release. And then, you know, when you start singing, you know, you go into like a trance, you know. But the crowd, you know, it's release. It's really deep, beautiful song. The crowd's already moving. So you're like, all right, we'll see what, what, what we got coming up tonight. You know, what kind of show this is going to be. Oh, and, did you ever, right, right and, uh, after release, you get into pretty much just everything is on fire it's all vitality stuff and an animal but it's all on fire so the crowd probably ramps up a little bit more after release into last exit i'm sure right yeah so you know one of the the masterful things pearl jam did as a band that night they made like this cohesive set piece and the whole thing sort of felt like performance art like are you watching a play because you have release fade out and it gets dark again. And then I didn't know what was coming. And then all of a sudden it's bam. And you're into last exit. And, you know, Jack's the new drummer. And it's like, none of that matters anymore. It was just shredding from there on, you know, as a show. And then, of course, people are bopping, jumping, dancing. And the show just started. It's like five minutes in. Were you like a hardcore Pearl Jam fan already at this point? Had you already kind of as an early teenager were you already into like getting the albums listened to were you like how big of a fan were you at this point yeah i was probably biggest fan of pearl jam in my whole life was probably during that time okay through the 2000s to this day i still have my five against one cassette that i bought the first week that versus came out and the cassette is printed you know five against one i still have that and at that time i was a total pearl jam nerd at this time in 95 luckily my future brother-in-law who I went to the show with he was a student at USC they had access to the internet you know in 95 and so you would have to go on alt.music.pearljam and that's where you would talk about Pearl Jam and find what the set list were that's how you traded so I was already trading when I was like 15 you know did you know about Red Rocks from the night before did your brother-in-law go onto that site and check it out. How privy were you to what happened the night before? I would read the message board like daily, you know, just to see what the set lists were. But it wasn't like it is now. As it is now, people update the set as they're at the show. And you wouldn't really hear anything until like the next day because people were going home from a show late at night. You know, they didn't Mm -hmm. go on online. We didn't have smartphones. You would hear murmurs like in the crowd, like people, it would be like, oh, did you hear what they did last night from people? You'd have to like talk to someone who was there and like where get around, like when you're waiting around in line and stuff. Yeah, exactly. Like you'd be like, oh, I heard they, they played, you know, the, they played some new song. And you're like, what kind of new song? And it's like, I don't know. It's real short and it's really loud and it's like a punk song. Like, all right, well, that's interesting. <laughs> what else stood out to you? Oh, okay. So yeah, so we're going, uh, so we get release, last exit. Bam, right, just like the album, right into uh, Spin the Black Circle. The place is just literally pandemonium. I always remember just seeing that crowd wave, you know, and uh, move around and mosh, and shoes are coming off. Uh, they sure did. 
Yeah. Add it to the thrift store. As it gets later, yeah, the pants come off and shirts and outer shirts and who knows what else, a whistle. So at that point, even as a, you know, I was going to be 16, so I was like non-self-consciously dancing and jumping and singing along with Pearl Jam, you know, like there was no tomorrow. I just remember they get to the cool down song. I think it's Dissident or something like that. But even for that song, the crowd went insane because the song was everywhere at the time on the radio. Like that's all we had was the radio, CDs and tapes. It was usually just the radio. And Dissident was like this massive radio hit. So when that started, like I, I, I didn't, it's not my favorite, but the reaction to that song made me understand that, oh, this song is somebody else's favorite song. Right, right. That it makes your opinion feel validated, right? Yeah, exactly. Let me ask you, just uh, put a bow on this after the show ends and you get a big ending here, Blood and Porch and Ledbetter, Sonic Reducer. Walking out, did you feel validated that like, yes, Pearl Jam is my band, like they're the greatest band in the world and they gave you everything you want, obviously. And then the fandom just skyrockets from there. What was that all like? Yeah, so it was... uh... You know, you walk out on a high note with all the, the lights up and they're doing uh, Yellow Leadbetter. And I knew that the show was over because Stone wasn't playing a guitar. He was just sitting down on like a riser or the amp or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> so I knew that it was over. And like, there's this post-concert thing where you're all walking out. There's like, I don't know, 13,000, 14,000 people. I don't know, all walking out together, like just universally with their mind blown. You know, like their mind was blown at what happened. That feeling, yeah, definitely cemented that Pearl Jam legacy for me. Because I'll never forget the uh, guitar solo in Immortality and just hearing those first notes. And I could just feel the way that they, they shimmered across the Exposition Park, you know, the amphitheater, whatever. I just, you could just hear the sound of, of Mike's guitar. And it's like, there's no fucking way I'm going to forget this. And I remember we were in the car driving back up the highway, going back to Chico from Sacramento. It's about, you know, an hour drive. And just goofy and being loud and deaf, you know, and happy with my new Pearl Jam Mr. Point t-shirt. There's just like this high that, you know, was a real high as well with all the weed smoke. But like there was just this post-concert energy that I think all Pearl Jam fans know and, you know, connect with. And it's a tremendous thing. Absolutely. That is a huge portion why we do this to connect fans like you that it's been 27 years since you've relived these memories of the show just to get you back in that place that you once were. It's it's never going to fill the shoes of it, but at least we can talk about it. At least we can relive the memories. So with that being said, Dylan, thanks for coming on. Thanks for talking. Your, story, your stories were fantastic and on. ones that can't be beat. And uh, just just tell Bert Bondi we said hi, because we're thinking about him right now. Yeah, he's busy doing stunts, but yeah, he's a stunt driver, but I'll let him know. Driving those uh, Lamborghinis. <laughs> so, all, right, all right, man. Peace out. Once again, thanks for Dylan coming on. We really enjoyed that conversation. And there will be more from Dylan later in the show as he talked about some songs that we're going to elaborate on when we get to him in the set. Now, 
you might think, okay, let's let's hear you guys your your take on it, but we're not there yet. We're gonna hear from another Pearl Jam podcaster. Who could it be? Hey, it's Brandon from the Better Band Podcast. Hi. I'm here to talk about my first Pearl Jam show. Now, if you know me, you know I'm from Reno, Nevada. So you're probably thinking, oh, so the first time you saw them was when they played Reno in 93. (laughs) Haha, no, I totally missed that concert because I didn't know it was happening. And on that day, I was listening to the radio and they were talking about how they were there waiting for the show to start and talking to people waiting in line and everything. And I was like, oh, damn it. So when they came to Sacramento in 95, I had to go. And uh, as legend tells, this was, of course, their non-Ticketmaster tour. So you had to call this phone number and you got these cool ass tickets in the mail. You know, those like brown ones that either have uh, Mr. Point, I think is his name, or the bug. And I had the bug one, the beetle one. And I've lost it in the meantime between then. I had it and it was wrinkled up in my pocket. So I put it in a big old dictionary to try to flatten it out a little bit. And uh, sometime between 1995 and about probably 2010, (laughs) uh, I looked for it in that book and it wasn't there. So it's lost to the ages. I went with my buddy Harry and his dad. We took the, uh, the van that Harry had. This would be the same van that probably a year later, Harry, a friend and I would be at a Taco Bell drive-thru with a couple of girls that we were trying to impress. And Harry took the turn a little too tight in the drive-thru and uh, hit that big old yellow pole, you know, that's there just so things like that uh, won't happen and people won't crash in to the menu board or something like that. Anyway, so the whole place there at Cal Expo, uh, which is now like Papa Murphy Park or something like that, boo, it was uh, outdoor and it was all GA. So there was a big, huge, you know, pit and it was all dirt and there was, you know, kind of bleacher-esque, you know, the stadium seating or whatever like that uh, around the perimeter. So since we were with Harry's dad, we sat up in the bleachers. It was kind of intimidating. We're just, you know, 16 and everybody else there was older than us. They seemed older than us. They were like college age, I guess in their twenties, they could buy beer and stuff. Uh, bad religion opened for them and it was still daylight when they started and the whole GA pit dust just came up and just was a huge cloud from everybody moshing and everything while bad religion played. And we're just like, Oh, okay. Like I think uh, his dad is glad that we're not down there in that. The real big things about this show is that it was an early Lucan performance. I think they, I think fans might've still been calling it Pacer 100 or something like that. If you had ever seen any of the old uh, bootlegs and stuff from before no code came out. Eddie, of course, you can't understand anything he's saying. I think especially, uh, you know, it's really loud and, of course, you know, young, so not wearing earplugs at all. And especially, you know, after having your ears blown out by bad religion. 
This was also the infamous show right before Ed got sick in San Francisco and Neil Young had to come out. So this was one of the No Jeremy performances. They started it out and I, I know that I had no idea what the hell was going on. And, you know, Ed's singing something and it doesn't sound like Jeremy. So you're like, oh, okay, he's just making up words or something. This is like an improv or something because it sounds really simplistic. Like they're just, you know, jamming on something and making it up. But then after he gets like two or three lines in and it's like, oh, I can understand the words. Oh, shit, this is Jeremy. As they play habit, you know, we can't understand anything he's saying. And we just kind of like, oh my gosh, this is like a new song. This is like something that nobody's ever heard before. Like, what, what is this? Like, what does this exist? Has anybody heard this before? Like, what's going on? And I think I didn't even realize or know that uh, when, of course, I got the Who You Are single before No Code came out, that what we had heard was Havoc. And it's only, you know, now in the age of the internet, when able to go back. It's like, oh shit, we, we saw this, one of the first performances of Habit. This is super cool. And to wrap up, uh, the last thing I sort of remember the, the thing that stuck out to me was, uh, them ending with yellow Ledbetter, which still at this time was a very mythic sort of song. And, you know, it was on this import Jeremy single. It's a B-side, so you don't think many people know it, but then, you know, they bust it out and they play it and it's like, oh, wow, this is so cool. It wasn't the de rigueur ending song that we sort of all know it as now. So overall, it was good enough that it lit the fuse and uh, was like, okay, I've got to see them more. I've got to see what they do because if they're busting out, you know, songs, new songs that, you know, they haven't played anywhere else and they're playing with this much, you know, energy, which is probably because they, you know, were playing a bad religion. So, you know, they got to step it up for them since, you know, they've been doing it for probably 10 years or so at this point. Anyway, smell you later. Brandon Palomo, ladies and gentlemen, great friend of the show, obviously. And look, if you don't listen to the Better Band podcast, what are you doing? Because the Better Band podcast, it's like it's like a brother-sister podcast, a cousin podcast, whatever you want to call it. But I think we we channeled the same kind of energy. And yeah, his, his takes and the people that he has on the show are, are very, very good. So don't overlook his stuff. Subscribe to him, Apple, Spotify, wherever, and just support him. So that was fun. Obviously, Brandon and Dylan, both great guests. And now you get to listen to John and I for the next <laughs> hour or so. Lucky you guys. Before we get into talking about, I don't think we mentioned this with Dylan, but this show was initially booked for Lake Tahoe at a, the Boreal Ridge Ski Resort. And then after they changed it to the Expo, and I think they were able to print the tickets saying that it was the Expo and not Lake yeah, Tahoe. It, it, I don't think it, it wasn't a last minute change, but that would have been so weird. Pearl Jam at Lake Tahoe. It's like, one of those Aspen or like yeah. places like kind of ritzy kind of vacation spots. Like that would have been a weird show. Like I wonder what that would have been like. Yeah. Like what? 20 years later they would do Telluride and that right. was kind right. of the same thing. So yeah, yeah I, I look, I think the scenery would have been really nice. If, if you watch the outdoor hockey game last year, they did one there. It was absolutely mm. gorgeous. So I think it could have been nice scenery, but instead we get thousands of people all on the ground. Like Dylan mentioned, they're all 
just sweaty and it's hot and they're just going crazy moshing everything like that so obviously we talked about this it's really not talked about as much as the show that came before this in red rocks it's not talked about as much as the show that came after it in the polo field so obviously when this happens something sort of gets lost in the shuffle and this would be basically the end of an era after this show i think polo fields really starts the next section the next chapter of pearl jam this is definitely a transitionary period you know all the Ticketmaster stuff going on just after this too they would lose that lawsuit and that would kind of be over that's the end of an era as well so a lot of stuff going on in 1995 and yet it would not be the same after this no but hey we were left with a really really good show and we're just gonna get right into it with well dylan said it the first song that he ever heard live it's the first song that a lot of people have heard live it was mine so let's hit release good things happening with this version of release just beautiful beautiful sound coming out of stone's guitar and it's just like the trajectory and the sound waves are like slowly passing across the sky as the sun is winding down like they went on at probably around nine o'clock and like dylan was saying it's the solstice so the sun is still out which is such a cool we talked about that when we did east troy from 2003 so that's just such a cool little throw in there but look every time every single time there's 1995 it usually happens within the first song you notice something different and what is that we're going to talk about jack irons today it's got this and of course we know the rises and the falls and Mm -hmm. everything like that with this but man once you get into like the big moment in this once you get into the big surge he's at the front here just leading the pack and everybody's following along and i think that's the start of 
what would be like 10 or 11 songs or so where all of these would have this kind of momentum and just sound like the band had so much energy, were on top of their game, and were in a very good mood playing this night. Yeah, momentum is a good word for the Jack shows, because like, and you, you kind of hinted at he's always on the front foot. He's always going towards the next thing. He's always such a rhythmic drummer and plays by feel, and like, release sounds so different with Jack than it does with Dave or Matt or, or anyone else. Like, it's just a different thing. He just has a different way of thinking about the drums, and like, it fits the way they were playing perfectly. So the section that comes and follows this, oh my god, this is 1995 in a nutshell here, everybody. Last exit, spin the black circle, animal, tremor, Christ. Right from the get-go with all these, like, furious pace. And I think the thing to watch is Jeff Amen. Watching Jeff here just reminded me of how insane he was running around the stage and jumping on the drum riser in those Holland shows from from 1992. That's what that reminded me of, you know? And, you know, 1995, it's like sometimes you, you hit with a show like this and other times the band is like in their own zone and kind of don't leave their zone, which they sound really good, but like their movement and their presence isn't really resonating to the fans as much because it's just a moody era but boy jeff makes the show extremely watchable yeah there's a jump in spin the black circle where he and mike have a little synchronized jump that's just perfect you really see the basketball player in him and spin the black circle too we should mention like i think dylan mentioned a little bit that's when the stuff starts flying the shoes and the clothes start flying from the crowd you start to see some projectiles that's going to come into play later what do you think is the big moment from this? Because I'm, I'm sort of thinking that Animal is the backbone of this little section. Ooh, I would say spin the black circle with Jack and, and Jeff together. But yeah, Animal's very good as well. You really hear Ed on Animal really getting into the growls. Yeah, you know, the thing that I was noticing with this, again, kind of with Stone, like the riff just has a buzz. Like it just kind of keeps that like I, I guess it's a little bit of feedback there's just a buzz from this that just sounds really good and, and you know watching mike during the solo too that was like the most 70s 80s rock kind of solo that he's ever gotten <laughs> into on this you know like it, it i wouldn't call it butt rock but it was adjacent to butt rock like <laughs> and there's one that's going to come later that's very similar that I'm going to make a comparison to, but I have no comparison really to a a certain band with this one. I see what I see what you mean. He gets in that mood sometimes. You know, he listens to those Kiss and Aerosmith records and it starts to rub off on him a little bit. Right, right. It might look maybe even like a little Keith Richards. A little bit. Just that kind of, yeah, that kind of sound. But yeah, it's just, look, I think these 
first three, especially Animal, Spin the Black Circle, and Last Exit, like, just a good sensation that you get out of this. And then Tremor Christ all, like, following up on that. And he's fierce vocally. Jeff, again, is is intense, running around the stage. And that was a very, very powerful performance to kind of cap off this section before you get into something completely different. Ed asked the crowd what's happening. Sometimes we're just closing our eyes up here, picturing ourselves back at the Cattle Club, which is a place they played in 1991. Do you know what number show this was for the band? Ooh, is this like a, is this like a 200 or 300 something? Ooh, no, 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 no. Um, 100. 14. Really? This was, this was, uh, they were, on. they were probably still Mookie Blaylock. February 91. Oh yeah, for sure. That's how long ago. So, and he makes kind of a quip. He says, Oh, I think you were all there too. Obviously there was probably what 200 people there max and probably not even that much. So, all right, look, it's no Jeremy. And we've talked about no Jeremy a lot out of the five times they did this song. We are now at the fourth performance that we did. We did the Randall's Island. We did the Red Rocks, of course. And then we did Milwaukee. We're all kind of accounted for here. The only other one that we need to do is San Diego, the second night from 11-7. So I think it's more interesting if, if Dylan just talks about it. So why don't we just throw it to him right here? Yeah, so this was also the first time where Ed was going to play guitar a lot. Because in 94, he only played it on, you know, a couple songs. Not For You, Elderly Woman. Rear this is This is where he was going to, every of you, play guitar a lot. So he grabs the guitar. I think it's Stone starts hitting this note that sounds familiar, but it's dark and you don't really know what it is. And it's clink, 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 clink. And you're like, hmm, that sounds familiar. But then this, like, nice groove from Jack comes in. And this is like this really nice drum you know, drum part that he came up with this pattern. And you're like, wow, this is like a relaxed version of something, but I don't know what it is. And it became, you know, at the time, uh, I guess now it's no Jeremy, but at the time it was called like Jeremy part two or, you know, something new, like that. New Jeremy. New Jeremy. New Jeremy. Yeah. Yeah. People didn't know what to call it. I remember watching it thinking like, like, fuck, this is brilliant. Like not only, are we watching Pearl Jam do Pearl Jam songs, do their new songs on Vitology, like these, like Vitology is probably my favorite record uh, still to this day, but it was just like crazy to see them do not only those songs, but then to get to what is, you know, No Jeremy. And then nobody knows what it is. There's kind of like this weird silence, you know, like, what is this? And then when he starts singing, a few people catch on to like oh you know you can hear it in the crowd and me being the uh, handsome 15 year old Pearl Jam dork I was I knew immediately because I could tell from that A chord you know it was Jeremy you watch the song just sort of build and you're like wow where is this going and there's like no chorus it kind of stops then it goes right back in and then it doesn't have all the words and so somehow by you know eliminating some of the words in the song Ed made the other words in the song more important I'm pretty sure he's like I picked on the boy you know he says that at the end I don't think he normally says that 
it was that moody Pearl Jam lighting. They had the up lighting, the, the lighting coming from the stage up to their face and only lights their face and stuff like that. And it was like this iconic moment and a piece of art because you get to it and then it starts building and then someone starts playing the riff, the guitar riff, and it gets more familiar and heavier and heavier. And then towards the end, when you get to what I call the Jeremy Roar, when you get to that, that is just like pure, raw, Eddie Vedder, that moment in time, that year. Brilliant, just like that roar. And then the song sort of fades out. And then you're back to where you were before it started. And you're like, wow, what was that? It's like this significant sort of moment to a, you know, 15-year-old Pearl Jam fan. You know, it was crazy. And I don't know if uh, everyone at the place was looking for that experience, you know, but that's just the experience that I had. Yeah, so after that experiment, and, and the one thing that I wanted to mention from this one is that even though it is an experiment, it does feel like the sense of a rock and roll song. You know what I mean? It's it's not completely out there, which I don't think I've thought about when thinking about No Jeremy before. Yeah, I think the Milwaukee one is the weird one. Yeah, and right. This one is a little more, not traditional, but it's it's got a more elements of what Pearl Jam was. like. Ed's playing guitar. the The jam at the end is just incredible. Like it's, it's something that would have fit in on like what they were doing in Corduroy or Immortality or something like that at the time. Like, very, very good. Yeah. The next little section that's coming up, we're gonna get Corduroy. We're gonna get Luke, in which we'll dish back to Dylan for a second, and then we're gonna get Not for You. This is a nice little section here. So when you get into the part where Mike's gonna solo and kind of bring you to the end, Mike is not. Like, either you can't hear him, or he's not soloing at first. And that, to me, makes the guitars feel extremely heavy on this. My analogy with this is like, there's a saying in baseball that some pitchers out there, they throw a heavy ball, which you can feel when when, when you swing at a lot of like sinker ball pitchers, not really strikeout pitchers, but they, they pitch to contact. And when they hit the heavy ball, it's really hard to get any elevation on there. And that's what I kind of see these guitars sort of being like. It's not that like everything is like really gritty and grind. It's just that it's just loud and everything has a way, like such a weight to it. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think there were some, I think there might've even been some technical issues at the beginning of quarter because it felt like someone started in the wrong key or someone came in there was like an awkward thing early on so i wonder if maybe it was a tuning issue or something but yeah after the solo like it it picks up it's another really really good ending here but there's something that's a little strange in this talking about the strange stuff is interesting however we're gonna dish it back to dylan here because this is the 19th version of lucan and i believe even brandon mentioned it that people were talking about how the song was called pacer 100 pacer or whatever it was and no one really knew what this was they were in you know for for a huge chunk of time you know overseas and they played it at the more but information didn't travel as much back then so we asked Dylan, what was it like to get a brand new song? Yeah, 
yeah, there was that thought that, oh, is this how the next record is going to be? Because, yeah, so right after uh, Jeremy, you go into Corduroy, and then Ed's playing guitar, and you just get this aggressive strumming, and then the drums come in, and you get this, like, fierce animal Eddie, like, just rah, 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 rah. And I didn't know what it was. I'm like, is this a cover song? Is this a new song? Is it a cover? I looked at my uh, brother and future brother-in-law. I was like, what is this? And we're just like, I don't know. And then by the time you ask yourself that question, and then you ask the person you're with that question, the song's over. And you don't know what it was or what it is. And I think they go right into Not For You. It was crazy. So it was like, you were like, is this going to be the direction of the band? This aggressive sort of guitar punk edge, you know? All right. So that, again, great insight on that. And of course, if we're going to talk Luke and we'll introduce Dylan back when Habit comes up, because again, similar story there. So every time that we talk about a 1995 Luke obviously the lyrics aren't anything like they were, but it's just another good, heavy performance. And, and unlike versions from nowadays, it's just in the pocket. And like, while with the speed and the heaviness of it, like it, it doesn't get overbearing at all yeah and how about this like this is only the second time that we get luke and in the not for you and that's become such a big transition for them like these two songs kind of paired together here we are getting it for only the second time but not for you is an absolute highlight for me like jack at the beginning and the the way that stone and mike and ed sound on those guitars like just like you were talking about in corduroy just that the tone sounds so heavy like this is this is one of the best not for you's i've heard in a long time This version of Not For You is very good. It was interesting, the Luke and Into Not For You transition, like there was a pause, mm -hmm. which obviously I don't think they ever really did sort of the rolling drum beat until Cameron came along. But yeah, this is the little little seedlings being planted here that these yep. two were yep. gonna have a, a wonderful relationship in the years to follow. But yeah, look, the crowd gets a rise out of a lot of these moments in this one, like with no power and fucking nothing to do, like the energy 
it stayed consistently hot the whole entire time. Like, this is the ninth song in the set, and they're still bursting at flames right here. And, yeah, like, heavy again. The heaviness doesn't stop at the songs. The intensity doesn't stop. It just exemplifies that aspect. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so let's go into Dissonant. The Dissonant is here, and then after Dissonant, it's going to be Go and Even Flow. And even Dissonant, that you think has a little bit of a lighter edge to it. There's not as much gain, There, there's not much distortion, but even on this, it sounds heavy. It sounds really heavy, and it, I really was hoping that since this was a heavier version of this, that we'd get the Big Ed moment at the end, but we don't. So... That was a little disappointing, but it gained more of an edge here than what usual versions have. It did. I'll agree with that. It definitely kept my interest. Like sometimes with Dissonant, when it kind of falls into that familiar, kind of kind of go through the motions of it a little bit, it can kind of lose you for a minute. But this one, like, definitely kept my interest. It was pretty good, and I thought the yeah the, again that heavy tone that this show has on the guitars really made it stand out and. Yeah, 1995, Ed, he's not going to go for it like he would have been 93 or 94. Yep, totally right. And that's going to go into another versus like Go. And look, I think they were doing Go in the middle of the set a lot from 1993 through 1995, maybe even into 1996 a little bit. And knowing what we know now that Go is like either the Kickstarter of a set or the finish to a set, which both of them are great decisions for this song. Does it feel weird to hear this as the 11th song? It's a little jarring when you consider like yeah because we were used to it so much but it's got such a searing like mic solo there at the end it fits in with the mic section of the show that like oh you're gonna get a big mic moment after this so it's kind of like the warm-up to that a little bit i I like it i think it can fit anyway it's funny you mentioned that because i was actually when i was thinking about go i was sort of thinking that because go always has that edge everything that came before it it felt like kind of stepped it up but when go came on it was like oh this is a pretty normal go but you're thinking to yourself like a normal go is what everything that transpired before this sounds like you know yeah definitely it's another little like reset because like they've had a couple of these it's like you get the blistering first part and then you kind of get tremor christ and no jeremy you're like all right we're kind of gonna mellow out here a little bit and it goes right back into corduroy luke and not for you then you get dissonant which is like okay we're gonna kind of have a little mid-tempo thing here we're getting to the middle of set and then bam come right back with go and it's like this, this just does not let up it's relentless so now we get a version of even flow like you said like this is a very good mic show And it does feel like you really have to dig for some really good mic shows in 1994, 1995. He's he's still good, but as a showcase kind of show for him, it's not until really like a little bit in 2000, a little bit in 2003, where mic shows become the main event. But this is a little inkling into what mic would be for Pearl Jam later on. Yeah, I can see that. And like, he hadn't quite become like capital letters Mike McCready like the showmanship and everything like now it's like you want to be on Mike's side like he's the main event for a lot of people and he was starting I mean he's always had moments you know but they were starting to you know you see even flow here was starting to like let's kind of build this middle section around him and give him a chance to like 
show off a little bit and do some things. When you think of 1995, you don't think of even flow, but like that transitionary period that we talked about is kind of the beginning of something. Yeah, the solo sounded very Hendrix, and I think earlier on, it had more of like a Stevie Ray Vaughan type vibe to it, which of course mm-hmm. those are the two that are most prominent in his influences. But like this is early, early Mike just stealing from Hendrix sounding very, very good. One thing I, I forgot to bring this up, but before even flow, Ed introduces it as being a song written for somebody that I knew in San Diego. Now, I'm a little confused by this because mm-hmm. what we know now from Safeco is that he told that story about somebody living in Seattle that was homeless. And I don't know if there were two different situations where he knew somebody in San Diego and also knew somebody in Seattle. So he kind of combined those experiences together. But I find it very interesting that he said that and and we know of a different story now. Yeah, I I noticed that too. And I think your theory is probably the most likely correct one is that it's it's a mixture of like I said two different experiences that you kind of fuse together to make this story of the song and 20 years later he has just kind of forgotten that he did that maybe or he's finally telling the story but it could also just been thrown off the case like hey I'm, I'm not really going to tell you guys what this is about so he could have just made something up we'll, we'll never know just knowing that little tidbit back then was enough that people were like oh wow okay now we can really kind of complete the puzzle uh, in a way you you never got stuff like this you never got explanations Mm -mm, not at all so at the end of even flow you can hear the taper and the crowd going wow they went nuts for that (laughs) it's just of course (laughs) it's even flow like that's honestly in in a second we'll talk about the crowd going nuts for something else which i have a comment on but yeah even flows is one of the few that of course they're gonna just explode for so now we're going to go into Daughter, which is going to be followed up by River Mirror. And even this version of Daughter just felt very heavy and it felt like the rise. It had like a grit to it. It had just a lot of momentum and energy, kind of like these songs. It didn't feel like a pop song in this version, if you know what I mean. Yeah, definitely. It, that's I don't know if it was something on the way that the taper was recording or the way that the hymns were sounding, the way it was coming through the board, but yeah this has that kind of like gritty kind of crunchy guitar sound like a really deep thick guitar sound it sounds really good i really like this version of daughter too like knowing you know dylan kind of just set the scene a little bit you're kind of in this expo amphitheater this outdoor thing and i love this little stars improv to start the tag i think that's really really cool. i i don't think it's a cover it doesn't seem like any other song i think he's probably just like looking out at the scenery the the stars outside and just kind of going off on this thing i always like when he's the Star. 
that was a really cool moment and yeah i couldn't think of any song or anything that that would have been attributed to but that's the most likely conclusion out of that but he he stops kind of mid-tag and says this is the coolest thing to hear someone sing along to and i had a really shitty day anything from 1995 could have made it a really shitty day but like this was around the time when i want to say probably something in the media pissed him off and it's around the time where people are hassling him about like Ticketmaster stuff and i don't know if it was one of those radio calling nights but like yeah he had a, a lot of shitty days in 1995 let's just say that However, he tees up another brick in the wall by saying, I've sang this one before, and then we get this tag. So we, we sang this one before. We don't need no most excited the crowd is for anything is uh, this tag is another brick in the wall and they're singing it like they don't sing any other song for of pearl jams like this there's no and it got me to thinking there was no real like sing-along moment they didn't really allow for it in this song except for in the tag where everybody sang together because of course everybody knows the song it's it's one of the most popular songs of the last 50 years now but like, I just thought it was odd that out of all the Pearl Jam songs being played alive and, and even flow and, and daughter better man, like the crowd was most recognizable on this. That is the Atlanta 94 effect. My friend, that is, <laughs> that is everyone at the show had that bootleg. The dissonant singles were out. Everybody had that. Everybody knew that that was what they were going to do. I don't think you even hear yeah, I don't know if it's the tape or someone else. As soon as they started, it goes like, I knew I called it. I knew they were going to do it. This is the big thing. Like, it's the cool thing. Like, that was what they did there. So I, we're going to be cool and do that, too. Like, you get it to this day. I think back then it was less of a Russian roulette for the tag. And most of right. what the tag would be outside of WMA, which was pretty obvious choice. I think there would always be these songs that he would do, like, for two nights in a row and then stop and never do them again. It would just kind of be off the cuff. So Brick in the Wall was definitely one of the rotating ones at the time that everybody was sort of waiting for. Like like now, you'll be waiting for this. You'll be waiting for WMA. You'll be waiting for It's Okay. You'll be waiting for some other stuff, too, even like a, a Blitzkrieg bop kind of back and forth. But it fires the crowd up, so it's very good. Now... Before we get into rear view mirror, we, we, we talked about this earlier about the stuff getting thrown on stage. And this is the part where it's really dark. I didn't see a lot of stuff just get tossed. I saw like a shirt a little bit earlier. That might've been when you mentioned it, but I didn't see a lot of stuff get tossed at this time. However, stone takes it upon himself to take the mic and say, okay, we got enough stuff. You can stop throwing it up. 
it kind of reminded me a little like an Indio light. A little bit. Yeah, but I think like it was cool hearing from Dylan getting the firsthand experience of like it was hot and people were just like trying to, to stay cool. Maybe a little bit of the, you know, fuck me in the brain. Again, that people had that because it was on the single. So that was kind of a thing. And you're kind of in that area as well. You know, you're, Sacramento is not Southern California, but you're kind of in the same region. So, yeah, maybe could it could have been some of the same people. I feel like that's another thing because the crowd knew about that. And that's been around for two years at that point, sort of in the same way that they knew about another brick in the wall. Do they do it to like, Oh, let's create another moment like Indio. Let's get them to, to scream at us for throwing shoes or something like that. Everybody could have a different mindset on it, but maybe it all just kind of boils down to people just wanted their sweaty shirts to just go away. So, could have been that yeah however that gets you that gets you into rear view mirror here and this is interesting so you know outside of the song now you mentioned jeff being the basketball player before and this is really where i felt like jeff goes from being a basketball player to being like shaquille o'neal or kareem abdul jamar or someone like that because there's a little drum riser that is in front of jack and and it has a, like a little bit of space especially on this one he, he's doing it all night he's jumping off he's jumping down but especially on this one he kind of stays there and you see the front of house speakers that are kind of blocking his feet but he looks like a giant he looks like a giant and then next to ed who is anything but a giant he's like five foot five i think it looks like he's towering over him yeah that's a it's, it's an interesting visual especially on this song it gets real quiet and then you hear you know jeff has that little little bass thing at the end and it must have sounded like it was coming from this like monster on stage yeah that that's a that's a cool visual and even watching this on video too not to steal a phrase here but the song gathers speed at the end and just feels like it has a massive big ending and of course the, the bridges in 1995 are just very open atmospheric and are just kind of laying that groundwork for for a big moment but ed lays off the scream and it's kind of like more of a dramatic effect thing but at the ending, watching the video at the end, it felt like it was sped up. It felt like you were watching that in fast forward. Like it feels like they're strumming even faster than the sound goes in. And it feels like the camera does run out of tape at that moment. It feels like there's a tape flip, but another cool visual that made this version of River Mirror feel faster than so many others. How many times do we have to say just a, an amazing live song and an amazing performance? Again, one of the highlights of the show. All right, so we're about to get into Habit, and before we get into it, Ed tees up the crowd and says, everyone up here on stage is pro-choice. This song is about another kind of choice. Freedom of choice is a good thing. If you're always out to make a bad one, then it's another bad choice. So... We're going to talk to Dylan again. We're going to bring Dylan back on the same kind of thing that we mentioned about Luke and him being a new song. He's, he's going to go through Habit right here. So let's let's get his thoughts on the second ever version of Habit. Ed was playing guitar, so that was cool, but it was tuned down to D. It was a drop D tuning, and I don't think Eddie had done that at the time yet. So I didn't know what song it was going to be because I was such a nerd that I could tell what the song was going to be 
by what chord like Mike or Stone would play when they plugged in their new guitar, you know? So if like, oh, he played an A chord, this might be a uh, review mirror. Yeah. You know, yeah. yeah. And uh, so Habit starts, and then I didn't know it was called Habit. Before the song starts, he starts telling the story about, this is a song about choices and we're a pro-choice band. So I had this like misconception for a little bit that I thought it was, it was never thought you'd happen like it was some oh. kind of pro-choice song. Never thought yeah. it happened. So I didn't know what it was because it was just called Untitled or whatever. Because the next day, when, when you opened up the newspaper, the Sack B or whatever, Pearl Jam was either on the front page or the front page of the entertainment. And they had the set list or a review that mentioned the song. I think it had the set list printed in there in a newspaper, which is... That's odd. Really I don't that think before. you see that. You don't see that anymore, for yeah, sure. I, I mean, maybe Bruce Brixton or something. I don't know. And then so, yeah, it was like, it was just another sort of long, cohesive piece of art that they did. Where now you look back where, Jesus, 27 years, you've had 26 years or whatever it is of, of hearing Habit. So like for me, I don't even know what the song is about anymore. I just hear the song. I don't hear the music movement of it. But this night, it was the second night playing it, like they just unleashed and it just sounded great and then there's like that long jam out at the end. You hear like a very familiar riff come from Jeff at the like the last piece of Habit. It's pretty cool. And then so that finished, and you're like, wow, that's another new thing. So you had No Jeremy, you had Lucan, and you had Habit. And you're like, man, how much material does this band have? Once again, great stuff from Dylan there. The thing that I, I noticed real early about this version is that the band is huddled real close together to watch what Ed is doing. I would gather that that first one in Red Rocks, they probably played like a couple times before that and probably didn't even sound check or practice it after the first night when they played it. Oh, this is an absolute train wreck. I mean, it's, yeah. it's a wonder that they didn't stop halfway through and either just abort it or, or try to restart it because someone's off at the beginning and then it doesn't get better. Like, it just keeps getting worse. And eventually, you're just like, oh, this is brutal to get through. Like, kudos to them for, for sticking with it and making it to the end, but it's rough. Very, very rough. Yeah, Ed lays off one of the choruses and that kind of throws you off a little bit, but you have to understand, like, this isn't even recorded for anything right now. Like, they, sure, Ed, sure. Of, of course, did it on the Ringspiel tour with Mike Watt, but I would assume that the band hadn't seen that, heard it from that. Right, that, right, like, yeah, different, different thing altogether. A song like that, too, that is just real deep, like Dylan mentioned, drop detuning. That's a little bit different for them. So it's also one in the future that they would screw up again, maybe for the same sort of things. And, and you know, after about 2000, 2003, it would kind of get left off. But, you know, they, they would figure it out, of course. But, like, everybody kind of went from, like, energetic and rocking out. And now, like, this gave the set a little bit of hesitation for this and it would kind of build back once they got more into it so let's dig into immortality then we'll get into whipping right off the top of immortality there is a tempo change in the beginning it starts off jack is just hammering it he's hammering and then he notices that 
the band's going a little, taking it a little bit differently. They, they're going a little slower. So right in the middle, he sort of has to change pace and change tempo to keep up and provide the actual backbone for the band. I thought that that was really interesting. Jack has the flexibility and like the capacity to do that. Another one where the guitars just sound like they're coming from underground or something. They just got this like resonance to them. It really sounds good. Yeah, just uh, an incredible version of Immortality. Another moment for Mike, and Mike kind of paints yeah. the song in the interlude between verses. He kind of does like this sorrowful kind of sounding riff, and and then he starts off that way when you're getting into the solo section, and then blasts you with the actual solo that just feels like, not to steal a reference from earlier, but like a 70s, 80s kind of rock god sound of guitar, which at that point, not to say it wasn't in his wheelhouse, but he wasn't yeah. doing that stuff as much. Like, like, a, like it's like a Black Sabbath, Deep Purple kind of like a little bit. Yeah. And did you notice too, Ed? Like right before the solo, he like sucks in and like goes like into the microphone oh. to like kind of build up attention. It's a it's a really cool like effect or something like just like half a second before the solo he just like sucks in a breath right on the microphone right before the solo starts it's a really cool effect the end here like ed mentions a lot of people in the front he said they're all risking their lives they should get a medal and that kind of attests to everything that dylan and brandon was saying that the crowd was just pretty on point and and crazy for the time but you know like the atypical immortality ending here you're not getting like a big drum solo you're getting the band huddled around each other but it's a different feel Yeah, it's a little more introspective, and there's going to be another song later on that's going to have that little bit of a feel to it, too, but it's just a different, it's not like a triumphant, it's not like a cathartic kind of a thing, it's a little more, like a little more like looking inward than spewing something out, you know, like some of these shows are. Sure, sure, and look, they had a lot of energetic moments before that, and I think that Immortality was probably the time to just take it and leave it as it is, and then whipping would kind of bring you back up for a second before going back down. So the camera pans out and whipping. This is the best part. You see the sea of bodies below. It's like high tide down there. Everybody's moving from down in in Mike's side to way, way far in the back. You just see everybody in this. 
when the camera zooms back onto the stage, you can just see like heads just sort of bobbing down. And that's probably people crowd surfing at the bottom. Like you kind of see hands and it reminds me of the, the Deb thing where you can see her midair mm-hmm. while she's she's going during the San Diego 95 show. But yeah, it just looked like very rough waters. And anytime he mentions it, like during immortality, he he talks about the people. That's going to even make it worse because now everyone's like, "Okay, oh, I want I want to be the one that he talked about. I want to be the one who's talking about me." So that's going to like make it even the more people are going like, to try to get in on that. Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's get into some ten songs. We're going into black and alive. Black is interesting because when you get to like nineteen ninety five version, sometimes they sound a little like emptier than most there's like just a a part that's missing that would come a little bit later however this version felt really full to me it it, i think Uh. it was probably due to mike what mike was doing in this filled a lot of the open spaces and and especially jack too which of course jack never takes a break on a song but again not a lot of 1995 blacks I've heard that sounded like before or would sound like when they really started to to pick it up and get really good with it in 2000 and after, you know what I mean? Yeah, it it doesn't sound like a 10 song. It it sounded like something that you would have heard on Vitalogy or something, maybe like a little more of that darker kind of introspective energy to it. And I love the Every Breath You Take tag as well. Feels like we haven't talked about that in forever, if at all. Probably not at all. They only did it nine times. But I really like the way that Ed incorporates it into the song. It's a different feel from We Belong Together. It fits in with the theme of the song perfectly. Just a really cool version. So three days before this, Alive is played, and the enthusiasm from Ed was just dead. He didn't (laughs) fucking care. And he even said as much. He said something along the lines of, I don't know why we play this one anymore. I don't know what the fuck it means. So the next night, the second Red Rocks night, it sounds a little bit better, but he still is kind of jaded about it. And in this one, kind of going back to like... You know, just not being emphatic like usual and cut off a little bit of the first chorus and it just gets a little chaotic. And then once Ed's sort of done with his part, he's like, see ya. I'm just heading to the side stage. You guys, you guys do your thing. I'm done with the song. Yeah, it felt like he had made peace with it a little bit. Like maybe they had somebody in the band called him out for it. Like, hey, man, we got to play the song. Like, you got to do your thing. Yeah. So he's like, all right, I'll, I'll do I'll do my thing. And then I'll step aside and let you guys finish it off. But yeah, it has a weird injury to it. There's definitely something off on it. 
One of the things I really like that didn't really follow afterwards is that during the solo, Jack sort of has that wipeout kind of drum beat going on, like just changed up the, the whole entire pace. And I know he was doing it a little bit in 1995, but you don't see it too often. So before yeah. going into Blood, which is going to finish out your main set, Ed says this is about the one thing we all have in common. Blood, probably one of the best songs to hear in 1995. There's a lot of fury. There's a lot of intensity. Even the band didn't have much of a stage show, per se. They dimmed lights here and there, and they, they did a few things. But Blood specifically has the cool moments in the chorus, the blinking red light going on in the background, which is very cool. Like You don't see a lot of songs in this era have things like this and feel like a big moment on stage as a showman thing. 95 Blood, like you mentioned, it's the showstopper. And, you know, we've seen those versions where they'll they'll do, you know, David Bowie's Fame or they'll do Atomic Dog or something and they'll kind of extend it out and, and do a crazy thing. Or he'll be, like, possessed on stage, like, circling around. And, like, we've talked about their versions slamming the microphone stand down and break things. And, like, I yeah, thought that was going to happen here, but it didn't. Yeah, yeah, it did, too. But again, a crazy ending here as well, but like, it just swells. Yeah, blood is the is the one that you want. It's just of the time. So that takes us into the encore. Only a couple songs left. They're not doing huge sets in 1994. This is 24 songs out of this. So we'll get into those in just a sec, but let's pause for station identification, talk about all the stuff that's going on Patreon-wise, liveonfourlegs.com-wise. Why don't we start off right at the top with some people to thank who joined our Patreon this past week. We want to thank Tony Marable. Thank you to Tony joining the bonus leg and Frazier Gonzalez also joining the bonus leg. So thank you both. Good awesome. stuff. Thank you guys. Yeah, great. Enjoy the content, of course, and give us a holler and let us know what you're thinking. But also, I want to thank a couple people that sent in a donation through Venmo, a couple of people that are current patrons, been patrons for a long time, and then one person that is is brand new. So big thank you goes out to Sean Raskis and Brooke Krause. Brooke has been a huge help with helping us try to fund for what we're doing on tour. And if you see some of her posts around, check them out because we're still looking for some funding for expenses and for equipment and stuff like that. So could use all the help as much as possible. And it doesn't have to be through Patreon. It could be through other means too, if that's more comfortable for you. And then uh, a brand new uh, person, Laura Cushman. Laura Cushman, we saw that put in a donation too. Very, very thankful Great. for everybody chipping in and, and helping out during this time because this is very important. We said so many times, two years in the waiting sort of deal where we're just kind of waiting for things to happen. And now that it's happening, we're really sort of building up a presence and, and need that help to keep going around and, and do as much as we can, as much as possible. So thank you all for contributing last week. If you want to contribute this week, then, boy, we have some stuff that came over on Patreon that we haven't really talked about, have we? There's something new on, on Patreon that I don't think we've really mentioned. We kind of talked a little bit about it on social media, but if you remember back in 2020, we did a little thing called Deprogram Championship Edition. And during that, it was 
six of us, John and I, and then a few of our friends, we, it was six of us, a few of our friends through the show, like good listeners and people that have been dedicated that we've become very, very close with and the host of actual D program, Justin Wilson. And what we did was we went through the whole entire catalog from the whole discography from all the studio albums to the single stuff to the lost dogs and everything like that and we broke it all down and made our picks and found like a top 10 not starter kit in that aspect but more of like a top 10 of what our group thought were the most pivotal type of pearl jam songs and this is a, a little bit different, but not too much. But what we did and sort of building some hype for the tour here is that we decided to do the same sort of thing, but with Pearl Jam's live compilation. So, John, do you want to fill them in on that a little bit? Yeah, we took the kind of compilation releases. You're live on two legs, live on ten legs, let's play two. And then, you know, the audio from Touring Band 2000 is, uh, is on Spotify, so we were able to pick from those as well. And the, the stuff from the Pearl Jam 20 soundtrack and the live stuff that's on there. We kind of wanted to make like a little 10-song playlist for people to kind of get excited about this tour that's coming up and kind of dig into live Pearl Jam again. You know, for you to show someone who you might be going to a show with that's just never seen them before or stuff that you maybe haven't heard in a while to go back and check out to kind of like build some excitement back up for the tour. I think we got a pretty good list. I'm not going to spoil it, but it's worth a listen. Spoilers, but we'll tell you where to listen right now. You can head over to our Patreon, patreon.com slash live on four legs or the Patreon app. Just search on live on four legs or go to live on four legs.com and click the become a patron button on pretty much every page. And right now what we have is an uncut raw version of what we did from last week. If you really want to hear it now, then you can head on over to Patreon. But however, we're going to have an edited version that is going to be on our main platform and is going to come out right before the tour starts. And I know we're, we're a week away from the tour actually starting sure. here. So it's coming very, very soon. So just, just know that it's going to be an edited version, but if you want the raw uncut stuff, then head on over to Patreon to, to listen to that and more stuff coming over there. I think that the big thing that's happening now is that there will be show reviews that are on Patreon. I think that's the big thing that people should be excited about because it's going to take a lot of work to do. And I think that it's something for the people that have been you know, dedicated to this podcast that have been asking for. So look, and everybody gets it too. It's not like you have to be on a certain tier or pay a certain amount from anybody that donates $10 a month to everybody that donates five. And then everybody that donates $1 a month or joins up for $10 a year, everybody will get access to all the reviews. They're all going to be on Patreon. Maybe the first one will find a way to make it free, make it a free trial sort of thing, but they're all going to be over on Patreon. So if you want to get our instant reaction, well, kind of instant reaction, we have to react to West Coast stuff, so we're not going to really do it the morning after or anything. So it might be kind of a day in between sort of deal, but we're going to get that stuff out and it's going to be pretty important for us to do it because we haven't done that before so again all going to be on patreon and it's helping our cause and putting together a documentary and for a lot of people that just heard we just got approved for an llc so technically live on four legs is a business now so 
that's another thing that, again, funding going into that is extremely important. And we'll come up with other ideas and, and maybe some merch things to, to sell along the way. But yeah, any help that you want to provide, whether it's through Venmo, whether it's for, through Patreon, PayPal, whatever it is, just give us a holler and everything helps you guys. If you wish to do Venmo, it's just at Live on Four Legs. So if you wish to do it that way, go for it. We obviously hope everybody becomes a Patreon because we have all the great content there. But if all you can do right now is donate through Venmo, then hey, we so much appreciate it. We so much appreciate everybody chipping in. And again, it's just the result of this is going to be very good because when we're out on this Sacramento show and the Vegas show, we're going to be doing some cool things on site that I'm sure you won't want to miss. All right. Also, stay tuned for live on fourlegs.com because last week we put out a bold prediction piece. This week we're going to put out a five in, five out sort of piece written by Mark Kirby, which is taking five songs that he thinks are going to stay in the set list for this year and five songs that you're probably not going to see much anymore. So that's going to be very interesting. I don't know what his picks are yet, but I think it will probably be out on Thursday. So stay tuned to that. And then even next week, right before the show start, there will be a top five of the best moments in each location's history. So San Diego, LA, Oakland, all of those will have its own little piece written up. So lots of good things to look out for. All right, back to the rock. So Ed takes the stage and says he speaks for the whole band when he says, from the bottom of our hearts, we're glad you can make it. Sorry if this concert's a big deal. It's not a big deal at all. For all you young entrepreneurs out there, I think we can help you start a thrift shop with everything we have up here. Probably, with whistles and bells and all that. Sure, why not? <laughs> then says, which of course, that's where I shop, which she doesn't shop at thrift shops anymore, I don't think. But And, and then he calls out the big chandelier that's above him, and that thing probably lasted a couple tours, I'm not mistaken, but he, he specifically calls it Jack Chandelier that he brought from his own house. Uh, I, I, wish, then, I wish, I wish. If only Jack had just just right, right. massive Victorian chandelier just hanging out in his kitchen or something like that. Really just... into brutalist chandeliers, yeah. <laughs> and then you hear something that is more common at a Pearl Jam show nowadays, or maybe even at an Earthling show nowadays than it was back well, then. Every every Pearl Jam show back then. Of course, but I think there was a time where they knew that they weren't going to do it. It, it revved mm, up after a while, man. but I think he, you get... I think you heard it in every show. Dirty Frank. Dirty Frank. <laughs> we tried playing that one the other day. It didn't work out. <laughs> How many times have they done it since that moment? Probably what? Two or three times, not many at all. So, yeah, right. And then obviously the Earthlings were just like, yeah, we're basically the Red Hot Chili Peppers, so we'll do it. Sure, why not? So we get into Better Man Sonic Reducer, the combo that you never thought would ever exist exists. And you know, Better Man is is sort of like Black in this era. It it had some tendencies of not feeling full and not feeling like. 
the big energy sort of song because it really sort of lasts for the duration of what the radio version is and not it doesn't have any like massive tags obviously no saving for later but even this version same kind of idea as black like it was clean it was still clean and very pop rock sounding but it just had a little bit more of a pick-me-up on it if you if you know what i'm saying yeah a little more upbeat a little more on the front foot it's a good one to come back with, I think, after, you know, Alive and Blood and all that, you know, that long 20-song main set. Yeah, that's it's easy to come back and, like, get back into the swing of things with Better Man. I, I can see, you know, why it would fit here. So heading into Sonic Producer, he mentioned that this next song is for a friend that opened up from Santa Cruz. And I'm not sure, I, I couldn't really hear very well, but you kind of know the name. It sounded like that Joe Gomez. I don't know who yeah. that is, but, uh, yeah. Well... Let that be another mystery machine thing, I guess. If you're, if you're listening, send us an email. All right. We, we get Jeff and Stone singing at the mic together, and I thought that that was a pretty cool moment because oh, yeah. now, yeah. after everything that's transpired, there was sort of this down moment where the energy was like, okay, let's finish the set, and it felt like when Sonic Reducer came back on, they were like, okay, let's party again. Let's, let's go for it again. Their stamina had built back to what they had in the beginning of the set so you know jeff all over the place of course stone solo the solo on sonic producer is always very very good and jack with those big heavy rolls to build back into the last chorus just made for another big build and another big moment on that what is it that ed says he's like he says he's like you got it tito or something like i couldn't tell what that was in reference to no i wasn't sure Again, another mystery, I suppose. they play sonic producer punk song and speaking of punk rock thank you for bad religion for opening up for us and mentions that they're playing under mother nature's hottest light because as we said before it's it's the summer solstice of course and then kind of addresses all the stuff that we we talked about is it always that fucking hot here do you consider yourselves a bunch of sweaty people and then kind of mentions some people in the front which is sort of an, a weird omen <laughs> He says, we have some San Francisco amplitraders here that couldn't wait till Saturday, and maybe they made the right call going to this one, huh? Yeah, in retrospect. Uh-huh. So, also thanks his cousins for coming to watch, which I didn't know he had cousins from up there, but they <laughs> could be anywhere, of course. Porch is going to be the penultimate song of this night, and of course it's a fast porch. It blisters through the opening. Mike runs through the solo as Ed's tagging a little bit of uh, Stepping Stone, which I believe we've talked about before.
from things that I read, like people sort of talk about this song as being like the bridge that sort of built punk rock, if you know what I mean. Yeah, it's an early rock and roll thing, but like Minor Threat famously covered it. So that became like a thing. But yeah, they did it on the first night at Red Rocks and then they would do it in Milwaukee a couple weeks later. It's similar to the Every Breath You Take tag in black. You know, Ed's kind of off to the side and he just starts like kind of riffing on it, like going for it. And like, that's a, it's a cool moment. It's like, it didn't feel like it meditated or anything. It just kind of, he just like was in the moment. Yeah, like all that stuff, it felt like he was kind of screaming into a wide open canyon in a way. Yeah, like yeah. it just felt, it felt very open. And then of course, the ending it just bursts and big strobe lights going off it has a big ending feel and i don't know if you know but it seems like they take their instruments off so i don't know if ledbetter is actually considered encore two or not because i think we get a tape change once again i have to address this in ledbetter because it's kind of timely and i know how big of a tiktok guy you are there is a trend on tiktok that is pretty normal, casual people that aren't Pearl Jam fans that make an attempt to figure out what the lyrics are to Ledbetter. And a lot of people that know me and know what I do that aren't Pearl Jam fans have all sent this to me. Like, oh, did you see that? I'm like, no, I didn't see it. I'm not watching this because this kind of stuff has been floating around the internet for 20 years, guys. It's enough. We get it. We get it. I'm a wee on a way. Like nobody fucking cares. Uh, we're on. gonna get. We're gonna get so many TikToks. I don't think that's how it works, John. <laughs> <laughs> My estimate is that we get zero TikToks. Well, you know, zero. I normally say we're gonna. I normally say we're gonna get so many emails. So I was just mixing it up. And that's one thing that I promise that I will never do. However, I think that this version. And especially in the beginning is sort of channeling that like, I don't know what the fuck I'm singing sort of motive. It almost reminded me a lot of like the 2003 versions because it's a lot of like, like he's really telling a story and like he's kind of making up this narrative about it as he goes along. He's adding a lot of stuff about this person in the song. And yeah, like a little bit of storytelling aspect to it than normal, I thought. A couple other things that are interesting about this. I don't know if I'm crazy or not, but does Jeff usually play stand-up on Ledbetter? Um, I don't think so. Yeah, yeah that's that, interesting. I, yeah. yeah, that threw me off because I'm, I'm, I'm like, has he been doing this the whole time? I know I've watched plenty of 1995 shows where he would probably be doing it in this era, but of course I don't think he does it now. I, at least right. I don't right. recognize that he does it now, but only the 20th time they played it. Still very early on. There were a couple in there that he was playing to stand up on, like uh, obviously Daughter, and I think there was one other, I can't remember at this moment, but yeah, I guess it's just getting more usage out of it, since they're not doing a difference or glorified G with it, so yeah, okay, yeah. look, I'm, I'm all for it. I think it's pretty cool. And also, I think Dylan mentioned this before, there is no presence of Stone Gossard. He's hanging out. I'm unsure if he was the one, because he, he was wearing a hat. It must have been one of the, the thrift store items. And he's wearing a hat, and he kind of goes behind Jack and gives like a peace sign behind him. Was that Stone definitively? I couldn't tell. It, it seemed like it was. I'm gonna, I'm, I'll, I'll throw it to Dylan if he remembers seeing that, then, then sure. 
Yeah, right. Most of this, Stone is just off to the side not playing, which I guess he doesn't need to play Ledbetter. That's a Mike thing. But Mike, at the end, gets his own little spotlight, deservedly so. He had a very, very good night for himself. And that closes this one out. So now I ask you, oh, no, it's my turn to go first. So now I will share a top three moments from this night. Number three, I'm going to go with release and just a a great version of this and just one that really ramps up and, and just caters into that energy that makes the song so powerful. And even especially with Jack and, you know, we're, we're limited on Jack of, of release. We only have it for what, like three years, essentially. So hearing this sort of style on it is just so much different than what would come before and, and what the song would become later. So yeah, this was a very, very good version. I was saying that number two is daughter on this. I really loved just the fact that daughter kind of went out of its wheelhouse a little bit because of course it's it's usually a pop song essentially and this one was heavier had sort of an edge to it so i I felt like this was very very good and i think the number one moment for me i don't think i talked about it enough but last exit and spin a black circle were so good animals so good that's the biggest thing to me to start off a show hot to start off on a hot streak and the last couple shows that we did yeah they've been on a hot streak and that's been the most important part of those shows and i think it, it goes the same here it sort of sets the tone for the night last exit spin a black circle animal and even if you want to throw tremor christ in there sure why not but these were all top tier performances of these songs yeah that's fair i i like that because i have a completely different top three that's, that's good when that happens. Yeah. My number three is going to be Immortality. My number two is No Jeremy. And my number one is Not For You. As he said, those are completely different. And look, we don't have a lot of versions of No Jeremy left, so might as well get in top three for sure. Now we go on to rate this. 1995 shows are usually rated pretty high. And what I'm going to do for this one is I'm going to give it a nine. And I think it's just right in the wheelhouse of what 1995 is. There's just fired up energy and then there's a little bit of sloppiness and then like chugging along to the end and finish very, very strong. And I think it's right in that wheelhouse of being a nine show. I 100% agree. That's that's exactly where I was on this, right out of nine. It's right on the verge of being in the top 50, top 75 shows. This is very, very good. And, you know, you're not going to find, I think we say it every time, you're not going to find a 1995 show that's like a six and a half. They're just on fire on top of their game at this point. So just show after show is just incredible. And this is another one that's right up there with the best. Can't disagree with that. Yeah. And honestly, like, like we mentioned before, this is sort of the sandwich show, you know, Red Rocks, you know, the polo fields, but nobody goes back to Sacramento. Well, we just did it because that's what we do here. We love the underdogs and we give the underdogs their day. And on May 18th, we'll give the underdog their day that day too. And we're hoping for a big show. That's the penultimate show on the West coast leg. We hope they're all amazing, which honestly they should be at this point, but that one in Vegas, I'm hoping for the best. Okay. So the next month we should 
sort of tee this up because this sort of fell into our laps. Now, we had had this scheduled for a while. We usually make our schedule way in advance because we know what we want to do and, and we figure out sort of little series that we that we want to capitalize off of. So within what we're doing for the preparation of the shows on the West Coast, we had for May a series of shows that focused on the vault shows that we haven't covered yet. So, you know, we covered the more theater one. We covered Moline. We've covered soldier field. We've covered the December Seattle, 1993 one. So we're going to get to, I think there's four or five of them that we just haven't done and haven't touched up on, which is falling in a good spot for us because there, of course, is the Vegas Aladdin Theater Show, which we'll be getting to not next week, but the week after. Next week is going to be the Great Western Forum, Englewood. So that's going to cover L.A. for sure. And very excited about both of those, especially Great Western, which I don't think I've gave a lot of attention to until recently. So that yeah, one will be yeah. that one will be exciting to go through. And And again just getting people pumped for LA because honestly, when that day happens, it'll be two days before the two LA shows. So hopefully all of this is just getting you hyped. All of this is getting you pumped. And, and that's all we want to do with these. We also just want to give you the best John tent that we can give. And you got it here today, but will you get it on YouTube? Probably not. Keep badgering folks. He will give in. I promise. All right, so if you're subscribed to the show on any of the podcast platforms, thank you very much. And hopefully on Apple, Spotify, you can give us a rating and the ratings will help improve the visibility of our show. And look, even on Apple, you can leave us a little comment. Let us know how we're doing. It helps everybody out that's looking at the show. It's like, okay, well, what's this about? And if you say that, look, they go through the best of Pearl Jam tours and the best shows they, and shows that you might never listen to, then that person's going to say, okay, I'm in on that. Might tell another friend that might tell another friend. It's all, look, it's all a trickle down and it helps out everybody. So if you'd like to do that, much appreciated by that. And got nothing else here. We'll be back for Great Western Forum 1998 the first of the vault series that we'll be doing in May. This may be the end. We're here, but not for much longer. And although we may be parting ways, miss you already, miss you always. Hey, remember next week also, we will have the deprogrammed live compilation episode out probably on Monday, right before the San Diego show happens on Tuesday. So we'll have people just getting prepared and, and hopefully listening to that top 10 playlist that we come up with. And after the San Diego show, look, we're going to have Patreon content that goes over the shows and reviews the shows and kind of gets our first take on them. And we're going to make this happen for pretty much all the dates. And we'll split up. Of course, there's going to be double dates here and there. So it won't be after every individual one, but we'll we'll get you enough. We'll say that. So, all right, that's all I got. John, your last word. We got enough stuff.
Thanks for coming. See you next time.